Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Are You an Evangelical? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 22nd, 2012. Are you an evangelical? I hope so. It's a trick question, of course, especially for a word that's so controversial and complex. Evangelical is one of those words that dies the death of a thousand qualifications, and that's a shame because it's an important word. Far beyond mere knee-jerk reactions, today you can read sophisticated studies about evangelicals from every imaginable perspective, historical, cultural, ethnic, sociological, gender, economic, political, ecclesiastical, missiological, theological, and biblical. I like to joke that I can't decide whether I'm an evangelical liberal or a liberal evangelical. And then my mind wanders to the far broader diversity of traditions that could be included under the umbrella term evangelical. Dutch Calvinists, African-American Baptists, all manner of Anabaptists, Catholic Charismatics, converts to Orthodoxy, Episcopalians in Africa, Brazilian and Korean Pentecostals, the Southern Baptist Convention, and, let's not forget, the original Evangelicals in America, the Methodists, thanks to the transatlantic preaching of the British John Wesley. A friend of mine describes labels as what he calls training wheels for the mind. In other words, labels help us to begin thinking about complex issues, but they inhibit our progress if we, rel re if we rely upon them beyond basic categories of analysis. Labels become libels when they're reductionistic. They can distort the complex by invoking the simplistic. And who wants to be dismissed or described by a single word? Every person is much more than any label. Despite these disclaimers, I want to keep the word evangelical in my Christian vocabulary. A Greek word in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 for this week explains why. The first sentence of the Gospel of Mark reads, the beginning of the euangelion of Jesus Christ. A few paragraphs later, Mark describes how after living in total obscurity for 30 years, Jesus burst onto the public scene, quote, proclaiming the euangelion of God, saying, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the euangelion. Jesus himself is the euangelion that is, the good news, or the gospel of God. And so an evangelical thus keeps the main thing the main thing, Jesus as God's good news. This word, euangelion, in its derivatives, occurs about 80 times in the New Greek New Testament. That's one reason why Martin Luther thought the Latin version, evangelium, was the perfect word to describe his radical movement that spread like wildfire across 16th century Europe. In his native German, 
the Evangelistica Kirka, in contrast to what he thought were the distortions, corruptions, and accretions of medieval Catholicism that had obscured the simple good news of God in Jesus. An evangelical, then, is also a person who identifies somehow and in some way with the Protestant Reformation. There are numerous competitors and imitators when it comes to so-called good news. Consider this inscription from Asia Minor from about 9 BC that describes Caesar Augustus, and I quote, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us as a savior has put an end to war. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of euangelion, the beginning of good news. I'm not a fan of Pope Benedict XVI, but I like what he says about this word euangelion and how it elucidates the peon of praise to Caesar Augustus. In his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Benedict writes, Both evangelists designate Jesus' preaching with the Greek term evangelion. But what does that actually mean? The term has recently been translated as good news. That sounds attractive, but it falls far short of the order of magnitude of what is actually meant by the word evangelion. This term figures in the vocabulary of the Roman emperors, who understood themselves as lords, saviors, and redeemers of the world. The messages issued by the emperor were called in Latin evangelium, regardless of whether or not their content was particularly cheerful and pleasant. The idea was that what comes from the emperor is a saving message, that it is not just a piece of news, but a change of the world for the better. When the evangelists adopt this word, and it thereby becomes the generic name for their writings, what they mean to tell us is this. What the emperors, who pretend to be gods, illegitimately claim, really does occur here. A message endowed with plenary authority. A message that is not just talk, but is reality. In the vocabulary of contemporary linguistic theory, we would say that the evangelium, the gospel, is not just informative speech, but performative speech not just the imparting of information, but action, efficacious power that enters into the world to save and transform. Mark speaks of the gospel of God, the point being that it is not the emperors who can save the world, but God. And it is here that God's word, which is at once word and deed, appears. It is here that what the emperors merely assert but cannot actually perform, truly takes place. For here it is the real Lord of the world, the living God, who goes into action. End of quote. The toxic combination of illusion and idolatry is precisely how politics tempts us. 
and also what followers of Jesus reject. The early Christian confession that Jesus is Lord thus included an implicit political claim. Caesar is not Lord. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, the kairos has come. The Greek word kairos denotes a critical juncture, a divine appointment or intervention, in contrast to prosaic chronos, or everyday clock time. You might, for example, yawn at chronos and forget whether it's Wednesday or Thursday, but kairos provokes a radical response, an urgent choice, or a fundamental reorientation. It invites us to repent, says Mark, to change our minds and actions, just like the Ninevites did in this week's Old Testament reading from the book of Jonah. When he announced the euangelion of God, Jesus identified God's kingdom with his own person. That's why he invited Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, come, follow me. Mark is unambiguous about their unequivocal response. At once they left their nets and followed him. And to punctuate his point, Mark adds that when they had gone a little farther, Jesus called a second set of brothers, James and John, who were at work in their boats. They too left everything at once to follow Jesus. Their father, the hired help, the boats, and their nets. Jesus proclaimed that God's kairos has come and his kingdom is near. Repent and believe the euangelion. In this week's epistle, written about 30 years after Jesus, Paul used remarkably similar language in his letter to believers in Corinth. Paul wrote, The kairos is short. This world in its present form is passing away. Scholars debate what Paul meant when he said that the time has been shortened. Maybe his death was imminent, that he believed Jesus was to return soon, or that he was alluding to specific matters at Corinth. Whatever he meant, there's no ambiguity in the response he urged due to the crisis of the Kairos. Paul cautioned against any postponement, entanglements, or distractions. He eliminated any middle ground and called for an either-or decision. The married, the mourning, the exuberant, the buyers and sellers should all live as if the normal canons of Kronos did not adhere. The fulfillment in Jesus and the foreshortening in Paul of God's Kairos meant that one should no longer live business as usual. The announcement of God's euangelion in Jesus should elicit a radical revolution in life's journey. So yes, I'm an evangelical, according to the Gospel of Mark, or at least so I hope. For books this week, I review a title by Michael Sims. The title is called The Story of Charlotte's Web, E.B. White's Eccentric Life in Nature and the Birth of an American Classic. New York, Walker & Company, 2011, 308 pages.
My wife read Charlotte's Web out loud to our three children multiple times. And every time she did, she cried at the end when Charlotte lays her egg sack and then dies. Elwin Brooks White, 1899-1985, published nearly 20 volumes in his life, including Stuart Little in 1945 and The Trumpet of the Swan in 1970. But none were more influential than his story about Charlotte the Spider who saves Wilbur the Pig from certain slaughter. The book begins with one of the most famous first lines in all of literature. Where's Papa going with that axe, said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Andy White, as he was later called, was the last of seven children born into a well-educated and upper-middle-class family in Mount Vernon, New York, a 30-minute train ride from Manhattan. As a child, he was given to pronounce mood swings, anxiety, and worry. Even as an adult, he always seemed more comfortable around the natural world of animals than the social world of people. He actively avoided the limelight of pu publicity. Family vacations every summer at a lakeside cottage in Maine reinforced his love of the natural world. White was already a gifted writer as a child. He once wrote, he once joked, I was a writing fool when I was 11 years old and have been tapering off ever since. He wasn't kidding. When he was nine, he submitted a poem called The Mouse to a magazine called Woman's Home Companion, which poem was not only published, but awarded a prize. Two years later, he published a short story and two years after that, another one. A blank sheet of paper holds the greatest excitement for me, he once observed. After graduation from Cornell, White moved to Manhattan, where he joined a struggling magazine called The New Yorker that had just been founded in 1925. It was an affiliation that lasted for 50 years. White met friends like James Thurber there and his wife of 48 years, Catherine Angel, the literary editor. At age 27, observes Michael Sims, White was a salaried professional writer. Sims goes on to tell the inside story of the publication of Charlotte's Web in 1952, including White's painstaking revisions, how he studied the science of spiders for a year, the choice of an illustrator for the drawings, and its blockbuster success. In the year 2000, for example, Publishers Weekly listed Charlotte's Web as the best-selling children's book in history. Michael Sims, The Story of Charlotte's Web. For film this week, I review a movie from France. It's called Microcosmos from 1996. It's hard to believe this nature documentary is 15 years old. The tiny cameras and microphones embedded into the French countryside reveal a glorious and complex world of insects 
ladybugs, beetles, bees, spiders, snails, ants, moths, mosquitoes, caterpillars, and so on, all filmed up close and personal at very high magnification. Raindrops splashing onto a leaf look like massive bombs. A speck of dirt looks like a giant boulder. There's not a word of narration in the film, only some faint background operatic music, which lends a nice French aesthetic to the world of science. What we do hear are the sounds made by the insects. Time-lapse photography sometimes speeds up or slows down life at this level. A flower opening in the morning and closing at night, or a ladybug springboarded off a leaf by a single raindrop. This film is only 75 minutes and would make for fantastic family viewing. My family watched it on Netflix streaming. The title of the film, Microcosmos. And finally, for the third week in January, we've posted a poem by Christina Rossetti. Christina Rossetti lived from 1830 to 1894. It's called In the Bleak Midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breast full of milk in a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall before than ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air. But his mother only in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can give him, I give him my heart. In the Bleak Midwinter by Christina Rossetti. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 22nd, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.